Well, today is a uh, big day, a lot going on from our worship time together as a church to the baptism. I believe we have eight or nine being baptized today at the end of the service and uh, celebrating that. And then at the end, uh, we'll have lunch here with our PCA families and then families in our church that have children in our children's ministry. Uh, we invite you back for some top-of-the-line hamburgers and hot dogs. And I hear we've got some of the best mayo in town. So you come back and, uh, and enjoy some of our delightful lunch today. And we look forward to that time in our cafeteria just down in the other building. You've noticed some things going on with our building project. We are certainly um, thankful for the makeshift lobby. This is not our normal look, uh, but it has been for the last several months. The lobby is under construction, uh, so we're hoping that within the next several weeks to a couple of months that that will be done. And we'd love to invite you back, if you're a guest, to come see our finished lobby when it is completed. And uh, thank you for your flexibility in parking and entrance and exit and all of that and how that functions throughout today. Well, we're here this morning to hear from God, and so I'm going to invite you to take your Bible with me to go to 1 John chapter number 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one right there in front of you in the hymn book holder or maybe underneath your chair, but uh, we've got the Bible scattered around, and if you would like one, please help yourself to one of those today. 1 John chapter 3. For the last several weeks, we have been speaking on Sunday mornings with the, uh, the thought of salvation, being saved by grace through faith, the exciting news about God's free gift of salvation, and uh, we've been looking at the elements of salvation, that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Michael Battle preached two weeks ago for us on Sunday morning on spiritual adoption, and as he looked at that topic through the scripture, the emphasis there was on sonship, being a part of the family of God, being adopted into the family of God. Last week, we looked at the doctrine or study of reconciliation, and we saw about how God turns the enemy into a friend. And our theme last week was once an enemy, now seated at his table as we celebrated the Lord's Supper last week as a church family. What an incredible reality that we were once his enemy, but now are his friend. And uh, that is a, an exciting step of faith receiving God's grace and free gift of salvation. So today, our study is going to continue uh, with this topic and thought of salvation. And I want us to look at this letter written by John. Now, there are four books in the New Testament written by John. There's the Gospel of John. You'll find that toward the beginning of the New Testament. That's where we find the famous John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Then John wrote three letters to the churches of Asia Minor. These are churches he had invested in and planted, and now he is writing these letters of encouragement to be defending against the false teachings, the false attacks that are going to come against the church. And so 1 John, when we read this letter, this is his first letter that he writes. As we get toward the end of this first letter, we're finding out some very important truths that John is going to incorporate into the minds and hearts of his readers. And so we pull up a chair today to look at 1 John chapter 3 as a part of the church to understand some of the teachings of this topic of salvation. Look at verse number 1. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear that we shall be. But we know that when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 
Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. Now we must remember in John's writings when he's referencing little children, he's in his elderly seasoned years. As he is writing to adults, these are men and women that he has led to, led to a relationship in Christ and also has invested in them. And so he referenced them as children of his. Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, Jesus Christ, is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of Man was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that ye should love one another. As we look into this text this morning, I want us to study a topic that I've entitled, Beware of Counterfeit Christianity. Beware of counterfeit Christianity. Would you bow with me and we'll ask the Lord to give us guidance this morning through the text. Father, we do pause to show and to express our full dependency on you today. We want the message from you. We want to hear the words from you and we want to know clearly of what you want to teach us. So we want to start by asking you to eliminate the distractions of our mind, the distractions of our heart, the distractions of the physical elements around us. Help us to hone in and concentrate on what you would have for us today. I thank you for the music, the worship that has, has prepared our heart as fertile ground to be sensitive to the leading of you today. So we would ask that you would give us clarity of thought throughout the message. In Jesus' name, amen. I read in a book about how the United States Treasury Department has a special group of men that are used to track down counterfeit money. Some of you are very well aware of the system by which they prepare these men and what they do. But for sake of illustration today, let me remind all of us of how they do this. Naturally, these men, they will know a counterfeit bill when they see it without any hesitation. We ask ourselves, well, how in the world do they learn this system? How do they know exactly how to do this? And oddly enough, they are trained by spending hours, or they're not trained by examining the counterfeit money but they are spent time training to know what the authentic, genuine money feels like, looks like, and what it is. So they study the real thing. They become so familiar with the real bills that they can, spout, they can spot counterfeit from a mile away. And oftentimes, they can do it simply by feeling it or sometimes even by looking at it. And so it is even with Christians in Christianity. So many times you will run into people who will claim the name of Jesus Christ. They will say, yeah, I'm saved. I was baptized when I was a teenager. Yeah, I'm saved. I said a short prayer when I was in summer camp as a, as a student. Uh, some people would say, I've attended church all my life. Some people would say, I've come from a, a good heritage, a good home. Mom and dad were always involved in church. Dad was a deacon. Mom was a Sunday school teacher. We were always there growing up. Some people say, of course I'm a Christian, I know God, I love God, and I love people, and they will use that as a reference of defense for their belief and their security in heaven one day. But Paul, or excuse me, John, uses this important time to give us the account of what 
counterfeit Christianity is going to look like. And what I enjoy about this study is that he does not give us the long list of what counterfeit Christians are going to look like or be described by, but rather he gives us the details of an authentic Christian. What the true follower of Jesus Christ looks like, how they're shaped, and how they function. And so this morning, without too much more, let's just dig into this. When we see verse number 10, it's kind of the theme verse of everything that we study in this passage today. He says, in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of devil. So we know that the children of Christ, the children of God, are going to shine. They're going to be known. It is not something that's hidden. It is not something that is a mystery. It won't be wondered. Counterfeit Christianity can be spotted so easily because of what the authentic Christian is supposed to be like. So in verses one through three, the genuine Christian can be seen by what we are known for. Look back at those verses. He says that there is the manner of love that the Father has bestowed unto us, that we are called the sons of God. Beloved, verse number two, now are we the sons of God and yet doth not appear that we shall be. It tells us that we shall see him as he is. Verse number three, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, Jesus Christ, is pure. Now, many of us are known for a variety of different things. How many of you in here love to cook? You are the cook in your home. Would you raise your hand? You're known by your, you're the cook in the home, okay? And, uh, and how many of you would say that you're known for your hobby? Maybe it's a, a, a sport or a, something else that you're just, you, you're enamored in, you read about it, you do it. Every weekend, you're looking for a chance to do it. How many of you are known by a hobby that you have in your life? Anybody like that? Okay, a few. Some of you are saying, you, that's you. Raise your hand. Okay, that's you. All right. How many of you are known as a student? Raise your hand. How many of you are known as a student, teenagers, children, and adults? Yep, Elena, my hand's up too. We're doing it. All right, we're students. How many of you are known as a grandparent? Would you raise your hand? Grandparents. Okay, so there's a lot of things. Wow, that's where we get some hands raised. Okay. So these are a lot of things that we are known for. And the question then is asked, how and why is it that we gain these labels? How is it that we gain the label of being a cook or a baker or having a hobby, a golfer or an athlete or a student or a grandparent? Well, the easy answer on some of that is how do we gain that label is that it's just put on you. When the baby came, you were grandma and grandpa. Doesn't matter if you're young and old or in denial, you are grandpa, papa, and that's just what it's going to be. Uh, some things happen by just our consistent actions. Some of you enjoy cooking, and so you're the cook in the home, and you're always sprucing up and gaining new recipes and getting the ingredients and doing everything in the kitchen, and you are the one. Now, you may not be a good cleaner of the kitchen. You leave it to somebody else, but you know how to bake, you know how to cook, and you know how to make a mess. There are patterns in our life. There are things that we enjoy. There's conversations that we have. It doesn't take you long to find out what somebody enjoys in life by just having a conversation with them. How many of you have walked away from a conversation and you thought, I think that person just loves themselves. That's all they really love, right? We've been in those situations before. But we, we see there's a lot of different patterns. There's enjoyment. There's conversation. That helps identify a label of who we are. So in in regards to Christianity or the Christian life, it's easy to look at a text like Matthew chapter 7, When Jesus said, beware, he's preaching on the mountain to the disciples and the crowd. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. I cannot trick anybody in here today to try to convince you that these plants on the, on the platform are beautiful roses because they're not roses, they're mums. The mum seed is going to produce these mums. They're not going to produce anything differently. And here we find that the good tree is going to produce good fruit, but a bad tree, a corrupt tree, is going to produce evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is, is honed down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. So John reiterates what Jesus was teaching here on his Sermon on the Mount, in his sermon. And he helps us to understand that Christians can be recognized by their lives, not just by their lips. That falls back into what we said at the beginning. Many people are going to say that they're a Christian. Many people say, yeah, I'm a believer. Some will say, if I die today, I'm going to go to heaven. And it's not by what they say, but it's by their fruits of evidence by what they live. So what are we? The genuine Christian is going to be clearly uh, visible by how we act. Verse number one, the positive response to the love of God is, is genuine salvation. In verse one, we see that the world doesn't recognize us. They, they don't know us because they don't know our Father. They don't know our Heavenly Father, so they have no clue of how to relate or how to connect with us. There are people in your work environment that are very uncomfortable with you because you bow your head and pray over your food in the break room before devouring your lunch. You don't gossip and backbite about your manager or your bosses. You don't join the crowd in that complaint. You don't let loose with your vocabulary just because something doesn't go your way. And coworkers watch you, neighbors watch you, and they, they don't understand how you can respond that way. How do you find peace within your life? Or how do you find temperance, self-control? How in the world are you guided in that way? Well, they don't know our Father. Therefore, they don't know us. In verse number three, we find that the love of God and our hope in him are these elements that change our lives so drastically. When lives are changed for the better, we find that the, the change has come in because of the love of God and our hope in him. In this crowd here, there are, there are many who are, who are living in the love of God and who are banking on the hope of Christ. So they have fully invested in that and their lives are living examples of proof that drastic change has happened. A group of teenagers, they were enjoying a party one night and and someone suggested that they go to, a certain, uh, go to a certain restaurant and party it up. Well, Jan was with the crowd, and she asked her friend uh, to take me home. I'd, I'd rather you took me home instead of going with the rest of you. Her friend, uh, or she continued, my parents would not approve of this place. Well, the friend sarcastically said, are you afraid your father will hurt you? And she said, no, not at all. I'm afraid that I will hurt my father. She understood the principle of a true child of God who has experienced the love of God in her life and it caused her an honor and a respect. When we talk about the fear of God in our life, it's not a, a, a tremor, it's, it's not this, this concern that next step is going to be cast down by lightning or I'm going to be cursed with the next disease or my life is going to fall apart and crumble. That, that's not the fear of God. The fear of God that governs our life causes us to know, to honor, and reverence God, not wanting to hurt Him by our actions and our decisions. 
And so that helps us to see genuine Christianity is identified by what we are, but in verses 4 through 8, by what we do. Now, this is where it kind of got a little tricky for us as we were reading the text. As I was reading the text this morning, I had some things come into my mind of concern because as we read it and digest it, we're thinking, oh no, whoever commits sin transgresseth also the law. Then as we continued in this, we thought, verse 6, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. So if I'm abiding in Christ, I don't sin. And then we got to verse number 7, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting there and thinking, well, I didn't have just the perfect greatest week. If I kind of evaluate my last seven days, I know there was times where I struggled. I know there was times where I responded wrong. I know there were times where I was tempted. And I know there were times where I fell short. But when we look at this word commit in verse number 4, it changes everything for verses 4 through 8. This word commit in the Greek, which is the original language in which the scriptures were written, it expresses the idea of making sin a habitual practice. So what he is saying here is that whoever makes sin a habitual practice is not of God. There is no part of you being in this sonship, adoption we studied two, two weeks ago. There is none of this reconciliation, being the enemy of God turned into a friend of God. If I continue to make sin a habitual practice in my life with no conviction or remorse, no contrite heart or need of repentance, I just look for the next step of pleasure, the next moment of of, uh, excitement, or the next step of sin. If I'm just constantly living in that way, I'm committing a habitual practice of sin. I'm not a part of the family of God. So we are identified by what we do. The Holy Spirit convicts a genuine believer of the sin that we carry in life. The Holy Spirit prompts that. I was having a conversation with a man yesterday, and he's just very transparent and honest. And he says, you know, I'm not everything I want to be. He says, but I'm really working hard. And I I, I understand that I heard your message a couple weeks ago about, about meekness and being kind. And I'm trying to put that into practice in my workplace And, you know, I'm not perfect, and there are times where I fail, and I'm just discouraged. And then it's helping us all to realize that God sees the bigger picture. God sees the process. God sees the growth patterns. Because just even hearing his voice, him telling me that he was thinking about that all throughout the week, and that there was something in him that said he should take an extra step of kindness to somebody or bite his tongue from biting off somebody else's head, those are the steps that tell me this is an individual who's being led by the Holy Spirit and who's taking steps of growth day by day. It's taking two steps forward and sometimes a step backwards Sometimes it's a huge step backwards, and sometimes it's more than just one step backwards. But it's realizing that I'm not going to turn my back and leave my first love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to understand that there are times of repentance, remorse, and contrite heart. There are times where I want to restore that relationship so that I can live right with him. And the genuine Christian is identified by what we do. So then we find here... We need to allow time for growth in others. Growth in others. If we were to walk through the crowd today and pick out four people, and we were to just grab them, have them stand in the aisle, and we were to line all four of us up. Now, I'm not going to pick anybody, okay? So quit looking away, like, oh, I'm not here. Please don't pick me, all right? Not going to do that. 
But if I pick four people, we line them up, and we all just open ourselves up to you, you're going to realize that we're all on different planes, different levels of this growth process, which we call sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus Christ. And some people had a really good weekend. Others are like, man, last week was a lot better. Some have really good marriages, and they're kind of making good strides. Others are saying, it's my weak link right now. Some people are saying, my parenting style, my parenting things are going, connecting, and doing well. Others are like, oh, I don't even know if I want those kids at the end of the day. All right? I'm not the only one, am I? Okay, sorry, that came out. <laughs> so when we look at all of us in this process, we have to realize and understand that as a genuine Christian, we're a part of the bigger picture that Jesus has for us. He wants to walk beside us. He wants to help us. He wants to guide us. He wants to strengthen us and encourage us. He wants us to see victories that will far outweigh the defeats. He wants our heart. He wants our mind and he wants our passions. He wants everything that we are. And what I'm excited about is to see a body of believers at Parkway who are looking to take those kinds of steps in their Christian walk. You have not gathered with a bunch of holy Joes and super saints. You're just with a bunch of simple sinners that are trying their very best to live each and every day that would be more honoring and glorifying to God. You see, there's a bigger picture here. There's a purpose for why we are here. The purpose that we're here on earth is not to make our millions and to build up our retirement funds. It's not to push out and then to develop the greatest projects. It's not to do the, climb the corporate ladder. It's not to do any of these things. Those are good elements within our life. Those are fine things. They're not sinful. But why we're here is whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Doing all to the glory of God. So God becomes my motivation. Glorifying, honoring him with my life becomes my all. And so if I'm going to make a decision for my life or for my family's life, I'm going to go to God. I'm going to trust in him with all of my heart, I can't lean or depend on my own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, he will direct your path. So that's where the genuine Christian is at. It's by what we say, it's by what we do that we are known by. So God looks at us as a worthy piece of instrument that he can use to prepare and he does that by chiseling away at us, by molding and developing and structuring our life. If you are not moldable today in the hands of the master potter, you are missing out on what God wants to do with your life. The story is told of when a great piece of marble was rolled in and brought into Michelangelo to see. And he walked around it, looking at it, and then he said, my, isn't it beautiful. Well, one of his helpers who helped rolled it in, he was standing there and he said, well, honestly, all I see is a, a big piece of marble. That's all. Michelangelo explained. He said, oh, I, I forgot. You don't see what I see. I see this amazing statue of David there. The helper looked again and replied, well, you know what? Honestly, I, I, don't, I don't see it. Michelangelo said, that is because it is now in my own mind, but I'm going to translate it into this piece of marble. And that is what he did. And God says, it doth not yet appear what you shall be. Did you see that in the text? It's, this is not it, folks. We're struggling, and this is not the end game. He says, you, it does not yet appear what you shall be, because what's going to take place 
is that when we see him, we will know him and we will be like him. So he sees what he is going to make out of us someday. We are discouraged when we look at ourselves, aren't we? And you know what? You know the way we encourage ourselves? Because we can be real transparent and honest with ourselves. I struggle. Honestly, you know, I struggle with my devotions. I struggle with my prayer life. I struggle with biting my tongue. I I, I struggle with being motivated. I struggle with church attendance. I can't be friendly. I can't smile. I don't like people. I don't like anything. And we just like, we struggle. And to help encourage ourselves about ourselves, what do we do? Well, at least I'm not as bad as this guy. (laughs) At least I'm not as bad as her. At least I'm not as bad as the rest of them. Somebody will say, well, I don't go to church anymore because I don't want to be around a bunch of hypocrites. Somebody will say, I don't want to go and be around sinners. I don't want to go around and be around other people because they look at themselves as being protected. They say, I'm much better, much greater off than being involved in a group of people like this. But when it comes down to it, we realize that God has this amazing plan for our lives to shape and mold us. And if we're just taking baby steps And maybe it was like a big step of growth. And we're like, yeah, I think it's clicking. I think it's connecting. And then all of a sudden our mailbox comes and we get three bills that we didn't expect. And we take two steps back because we say, yeah, thanks a lot, God. I was really living for you and excited about things. And now you knock me off my feet. Two steps back. Then we wake up the next morning, calm spirit, trusting in the Lord. He's got this. He's going to take care of me. In verse number five, we see that sin is not compatible with the work of Christ. Christ died to save the sinner. But he also, we have to remember that Christ died to sanctify us, to make us holy. We talk about the gospel message here a lot at Parkway. We talk about the gospel message being powerful to bring us to salvation. It changes our life. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ died for us on our behalf as our substitute He came to life, born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life, and then he gave himself for us. And as he died on that cross, spreading his arms of love, he said, I will take on the sins of all the world, of all mankind. And as he took on that sin, he gave his life as a ransom for us. And then they took his dead body off that cross and buried it into a borrowed tomb. Borrowed tomb. Because as they laid him into that tomb, thinking that all hope was gone, all victory was lost, the devil and the enemy had won it all. But three days later, just as Jesus had already said, he came back to life. The amazing miracle of his resurrection. He came back to life with victory over death, with victory over the grave, with victory over sin. And he claimed that victory. And then he ascended to heaven. Do you remember? We sang it in the song. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Now this thought of the gospel, it's what brings us salvation, but it's also what gives us the ability and power to live our life as a genuine Christian. As a genuine believer, I fall back on the gospel message to give me motivation for growth, fuel to move forward, and the passion to love him more. In verse number six, here's the intense verse that we dig into. Because according to the verb tense, John uses does not sin. Well, for some of us, we see that and we think, oof, that counts me out. But remember, this means does not live a life of sin in a habitual habit. So it's not saying if you sin, you're you're just out, you're down and out, you're out of it. You lost your salvation or you're no good or you're really not a Christian. That's not what that means. 
Again, coming back to a very important truth that John is teaching us is this habitual act of sin. First number, uh, 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John has already reminded the Christians to the churches he's writing that if we try to pretend like we're not sinners, eh, you're wrong. Step back and take a real good look. Because if we say that we're not sinners, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But then he jumps back into the last part of this letter, and he says, if there's any sin in you, if you do any sin, commit any sin, then you're not a part of God. Well, what he's saying again is this living and habitual practice of sin. Now, we all have our besetting sins. We all have our skeletons hiding in the closet. We all have that one thing, two things, many things. We don't share. We don't talk about. Those things are besetting sins that really cause us to be guilt-ridden, cause us to wonder if I'm genuinely saved, cause us to wonder if I'm really passionate about the things of God, cause us to think that I'll never grow, I'll, I'll never achieve this. So we have those things. But the question doesn't become, are we in these patterns? The question becomes, what do we do when that happens? Is there remorse in your heart? Is there something in you that convicts you, that knows this is wrong, and I have to do something about it? Do we know that there's this broken relationship? Do we know that as Jan referred to saying, I don't want to go to that place, my dad does not approve, are you afraid of your dad? No, I'm afraid of hurting him. So does that spirit come into your heart? If it does, that's clear evidence that you know you're a genuine believer by what you do. In John 1.8, the grammar indicates that John is speaking about occasional acts of sin. If you sin, if you say you don't sin, you deceive yourselves, the truth is not in you. But in 1 John 3, 6, indicates that John is speaking of a settled, continual lifestyle of sin. Lifestyle of sin. It's important to understand and remember that there has, there has to be room for growth in all of us. Okay? Number three, the last thing, we're done. What are we controlled by? What are we controlled by? The genuine Christian is known by what we are controlled by. Verse number nine, John references the main point that enables us to live righteously. That is being born of God. When we talk about this being born of God, we think back about John chapter three in the gospel of John, not in this first letter of John, but in the gospel of John, he is talking about a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very religious and smart guy. And he saw and heard about this man named Jesus who was performing miracles and teaching amazing truths. And so Nicodemus, though he was powerful, popular, and he was smart, he was still going to find himself looking to have a conversation with Jesus. So he waits until the shadows of the night hit the pavement, and he starts to walk on the cobbled stone road as he makes his way from his door to where Jesus is sitting in a house hanging out with a bunch of sinners, nonetheless. As Nicodemus quietly approaches the door, maybe looking over his shoulder one last time to make sure that nobody notices what Nicodemus is about to do, he quietly walks up to the door, peeks in, and sees Jesus having conversation, laughter of, well, his teaching. Nicodemus quietly knocks on the door, maybe thinking in his mind, well, maybe they don't hear me. I don't want to bother them. I can just go on. I'll come back another time. But Jesus, being God in man form, realized what was going around, uh, going on in his surroundings. And he looked up from the table, looked at the doorway, and invited Nicodemus to have conversation. 
In John chapter 3, we begin to see it unfold as Nicodemus is asking about these amazing truths that Jesus is teaching, these amazing miracles that he is doing. And Jesus gives him very clearly laid out the gospel story, the gospel plan for Nicodemus to inherit eternal life. So as he told him, the verse we quoted at the beginning, we see that he said that God, the Father, so loved the world, all world, all mankind, whosoever would be in that group. As he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was Jesus. He's sitting there predicting what was going to happen in the, in the days ahead, knowing that he would be given as a sacrifice on the cross. And so Jesus simply said that God loves the world so much, he's going to give me his only son so that whosoever will believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You notice what we've kind of guided through today is the question is always going to come to this, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Some religions will teach you that Jesus was just a, a, good, a good guy, prophet, good man, good morals, good friend, a good teacher, somebody you'd want to be around. Other people are just going to clearly cut him out and say, Jesus didn't exist. This is no way. He could not be born of a virgin. There's no way he died on a cross, was buried, and three days later came back to life. Come on, give me a break. There are people who will deny it. But there are millions of others today and billions of others through all of history who have said, what will I do with Jesus? Well, I will make Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords in my life. And here on this earth, I will bow a knee before him and proclaim him to be God. And here I will understand that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that I cannot come to the Father except by Jesus Christ. That's where you are today. The question has to be asked in your own heart and mind, what will you do with Jesus? So except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, a tremendous change takes place. He is given a new standing before God. He is being accepted as righteousness in God's sight. And this new standing is called justification. It's taking us as unworthy sinners and justifying us. It is not saying that we are guiltless. It is saying because of Jesus, God will look at us as being guiltless, as nothing to label us as except for being righteous. That's an amazing thought, that Jesus Christ would take on that label for us, that Jesus Christ would justify us. A genuine Christian is controlled by the Holy Spirit, and this plays a vital part, a vital role in our inner man of who we are. The inner man needs to be fed just like the physical man does. A converted Native American explained, I have two dogs living in me. He says, a mean dog and a good dog. They're always fighting. The mean dog wants me to do bad things, and the good dog wants me to do good things. Do you want to know which dog wins? The one I feed the most. What is controlling your life today? Do you see a pattern of the Holy Spirit's involvement? The inner man within us, it, it needs feeding. It needs cleansing. It needs exercising. Just as the physical body needs nutrition of food, and just as it needs cleansing, and just as it needs exercising to stay fit and healthy and functioning on a day-to-day -day basis, so the inner man, too, needs that feeding of reading God's Word, digesting the Word of God, and seeing it as nutrients for our life. 
just in the way as the physical body needs cleansing, our spirit needs cleansing of a confession of sin and claiming God's forgiveness. It's a, as James would say in his book, in James chapter 1, verse 22, it's like looking into the mirror of God's word to see the areas of our life as we examine. It is purifying our hearts. It is letting the engrafted word of God come in us and change us. That is the cleansing that we need. And the inner man, just like the physical man, needs exercising. Sharing Christ with others is bold steps of faith. Self-denial, turning away from temptation, doing good works in the name of Jesus Christ. That's being the hands and feet of Jesus and helping to edify other believers. Have you ever heard the phrase, face the music? Many of you have. It's a common phrase used to express when one is to be confronted with the unpleasant consequences of one's action. So centuries ago, there was a Chinese man who grew up loving music. It was his passion. He was jealous of those who could play musical instruments, and he would go to every concert that he could, and he would sit there just watching them play and listening to the beautiful music. Due to his own fear and insecurities, he never sought to learn how to play an instrument for himself. He never took those steps of, of, of exercise and practice. He would rather just sit and listen to others. When he became older, his love of music grew and his life's desire was to be associated with music somehow, to be identified in that way. So he devised a scheme. This was a plan that, in which he would deceptively forge his way into being accepted into the Chinese National Symphony. So he carried a violin with him everywhere he would go, and so he deceived people into thinking that he could actually play. For years, he would travel and he would sit with the symphony during performances. He would never really play the notes. He would not know what to do other than just sit there and enjoy the experience of pretending to play the violin. Until one year came that the symphony played before the emperor of China. The emperor, were, the emperor was so excited and so pleased by the performance of the Chinese National Symphony that he requested that each musician come to his palace to play for him the next day, but to play individually. So the man was so distraught and overcome with fear that he went out that night and he committed suicide, unable to face the music. Matthew 7, 21 tells us, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father, which is in heaven. So today, the question for all of us in here is not, are you a religious person? The question is not, have you been baptized? The question is not, have you always been in church? The question is not, are you a good person? The question is, what will you do with Jesus? The genuine, authentic believer and follower of Jesus Christ is going to be identified by what they do, how they act, what they say, and what they're known for. And definitely here, this counterfeit Christianity is going to be identified clearly because the authentic believers will shine forth as they'll be manifested by Jesus Christ.